0: American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review editor in chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows.
1: Is Israel committing war crimes? And what's up in the house? We'll discuss all this and more. On this edition of The Editors, I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by Philip Phil Klein, Noah Rothman, and the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Moink and Bambi. More about both of those in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said... Anything. So, Jim, we've predicted on this podcast that there would be this initial wave of sympathy for Israel that would wear off more or less pretty quickly. And then the focus would be on Israel going too far. The focus has become on Israel going too far, even before it's invaded Gaza. <laughs> the The ground forces are are staging and maybe not even really staging that close to to Gaza. Yet, and we already have this international outcry that uh, Israel needs to stay its hand and and show more restraint.
2: Yeah, I'm going to begin by pointing out that the claims of a humanitarian crisis are not imaginary. Uh, Life in the Gaza Strip has always sucked, uh, but it's particularly bad now. They can't get relief aid in, and Israel is bombing targets targets associated with Hamas. And Hamas loves to use civilians as uh, cover, as uh, uh, you know, to you know put their headquarters in the basements of hospitals, and to store their weapons in schools, and to do all the difficult things that make Hamas what Hamas is. There, yeah, they're,
1: uh, Jim. Com- Jim, I was just noticing right before we got on, there was a, a little news item in the New York Times about a Hamas, a top Hamas. Uh, commander being killed in a raid, according to Hamas, at a refugee camp. So this is how it yeah. works, right? You yeah. hit, you try to hit this guy, maybe you miss, maybe you don't, but you're bombing by definition a refugee camp, but he's there. So what are you supposed to do?
2: Uh, you know, the IDF has posted plenty of videos in which they target some seemingly ordinary looking building. And then you see lots and lots of secondary explosions, which is an indication that, you know, missiles or other ammunition or other explosive things were, were being stored in there. So, uh, you know, Israel doesn't have any options There, that they're, they can avoid all civilian casualties. Uh, we can argue exactly where that line is and when the reward of taking out an enemy um, justifies the collateral damage to civilians. But again, it is Hamas that keeps these people here and it chooses to keep its military installations right in the middle of crowded civilian areas. It's just kind of the, the, the nature of this conflict and the, to tell Israel... Well, you're killing too many innocent Palestinians. You can't shoot back. Well, then you're saying they can't respond to these sorts of, uh, you know, barbaric slaughter of their own citizens at all. Mm-hmm. Like Israel doesn't have many options. You know, if you, if you really want to be mad about the civilian casualties, yell at Hamas. Don't yell at Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, the big news of I guess late last night into this morning is that President Biden will be going to visit Israel. As of this recording, it's going to be you know supposed to go there Wednesday. Um, I. For a president who only appeared in front of cameras for three minutes during the first 72 hours of this crisis, I guess I should be careful what I wish for. uh, Because it is, I think, you know, Biden means well. I think it is good for the U.S. president to say to the Israelis, we are completely with you. And I think a visit does communicate that. I also noticed that Israel wanted to launch the ground offensive against Hamas. Uh, There was, as I talked about this in today's Morning Jolt, there was one report saying it was weather related delays. The other, uh, report was that the IDF was concerned that well, if they commit lots of troops to the Gaza Strip, then Hezbollah up in the North will start launching rockets. So I, I don't know why the offensive hasn't started yet. I imagine having Biden on the ground in Tel Aviv would be a new complication to all of this. And I would also just kind of my last concluding thought, you know, I hope Joe Biden lives to be a hundred, um, which will be another 20 years just for perspective. Um, but, I, I you know, there's some risk going here. Uh, I think when he visited Kyiv back in February, you could be reasonably assured that as absolutely malevolent, as evil as the Russians were, they weren't stupid and they weren't going to try to shoot at a U.S. president while he's in Kyiv. I don't know if Hamas has that same risk-reward calculus. I, th- these guys don't have great aim with their rockets to begin with. And so the risk to Biden in Tel Aviv is – no, it's not large, but it exists. And so on the one hand, I salute the president for having some courage to go over there, a little bit nervous. Um, And we'll see how this shakes out. But also I figure having Biden on the ground – like I assume the Israelis will not be able to launch a ground offensive while the US president is making a visit.
1: Yeah. So, Noah, let me um, – I, I want you to get on the – get you on the big picture, but let me sort of lightning round style get you on, on a few um, s- smaller bore questions first. So, cutting off the the, the water and power to Gaza, how, how do you think of that in terms of its military uh, u- utility and, and justification?
0: Well, first of all um, – That's a little exaggerated. Um, There is civilian infrastructure, particularly in the south. um, Israel does provide electricity and water to the Gaza Strip. Um, It is under no obligation to do so against a declared military foe. There is no article of the laws of armed conflict that compel them to do so, to provide uh, support and material assistance to an enemy engaged in active combat. Nevertheless, the idea that they weren't completely cut off and everybody was starving and everybody was dying of of uh, thirst was uh, highly exaggerated. Uh, there is infrastructure that um, that is some functioning infrastructure in Gaza. Nevertheless, that has since been uh, terminated, whatever that was, um, was a brief interlude. Now the IDF has restored at least the transfer of water. I don't know if electricity is back on in the yeah. south, but so south of Gaza City. Then
1: then another, another, another relatively quick one. And, and then then, how do you think uh, also about the order for civilians to to move move south? You know, this is being portrayed yeah. as ethnic cleansing, et cetera?
0: Well, that's absolute nonsense. And just to add to something that um, Jim had a very uh, r- really comprehensive roundup of all the uh, reasons why Hamas is such a bad actor here. But just to add a little bit to that, you know, they fire off these real rudimentary rockets into Israel, and quite a lot of them fall on Gaza. Quite a lot of them are responsible for Gaza civilian casualties. Moreover, you see quite a few Hamas soldiers, this is, you know, tried and true tactics on their part, Hamas soldiers who um, remove their uniforms and, and are killed in combat because they're, they're fighting outside of uniforms, and they're counted as civilian casualties. It is a profoundly disheartening to see mainstream media outlets in the West quote accurately the Gaza Health Ministry, which is an unreliable narrator, Mm -hmm. It exists to promote the idea that just about every casualty, whoever it is, in this conflict on the Gaza side is a civilian. Uh, The Hamas uh, faction has been uh, shown rather reliably, I think, based on the evidence that I've seen, to be uh, putting up roadblocks in order to block civilian exit from the from the areas that uh, Israel has said you need to evacuate from, it has said on the record in Arabic. You can go find it. I've written about it on National Review. Don't leave. Do not move. Defend your homes. It has uh, forcibly blocked people of trade gangs to Fox News. As uh, demonstrators has shown this, with his the evidence he's privy to has shown that they're forcibly keeping people in in place in order to maximize the number of civilians who will die in this conflict. Also, Hamas has, as it has on several occasions in past conflicts demanded that civilians um, head to the, uh, to the borders, to the borders of Israel in order to make a, some sort of a human shield to interdict uh, so that um, so that the idea of can't penetrate And the international community is now saying that it's responsible for, to Israel. Israel's responsibility is to establish a humanitarian Ga- corridor in Gaza. Where? how? What is the mechanism by which they do this? They've identified, a, a corridor that is exempt from um, missile and artillery fire, and that's where you're supposed to go. It is not incumbent on the government of Israel, which has is declared war with this regime, with this sovereign over these people to provide for their safety. That is the responsibility of the sovereign.
1: And then f- finally, no. what is your read on what, what uh, Jim was discussing there? Why has the... Ground invasion been so slow. Maybe I should put you know air quotes around slow. This is not you know it's a big operation. It's a, a big undertaking, uh, but it does seem as though there are uh, exogenous factors at, at play here. One of the one possibility people have uh, uh, mentioned that that Jim didn't uh, is that maybe there's a possibility the, the U.S. is negotiating with Hamas over the possible release of the American hostages and. and Asking Israel not to go in um, on on that ground to to give us time. There's also the case that perhaps Israel is considering this, that, you know, this is this was what Hamas wanted It wanted a ground invasion to uh, launch a insurgency for which it's very well prepared with this extensive tunnel network, including, you know, under the extremely densely populated Gaza City to just suck (coughs) and bleed. Uh, Israel, suck in Israel, bleed Israel, and make it uh, vulnerable perhaps to attack from the north or just simply to, to subject it to a, a grinding war of insurgency.
0: Yeah, Phil and I were discussing this earlier this morning. And I know he has some thoughts on this too. Uh, and it's a much bigger question than I can answer right now because there are so many variables at play. Just about every media outlet I've said, or I've read rather, has said weather, weather, weather. The idea was to go in over the weekend. Weather did not cooperate, wouldn't allow for air cover, and so it was delayed. But nevertheless, there are so many other contributing factors. As you suggest, one Jerusalem Post analysis that Phil and I were talking about earlier uh, identified a couple of them, one being the all but assumed uh, fact of this conflict that uh, Hama, or Hezbollah in the north, an Iranian terrorist militia controlled by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, will enter the conflict once they're assured that the IDF is sufficiently bogged down mm-hmm. in Gaza, which you can never fully prepare for, but they wanna prepare as much as they possibly can. And also there's the sense that this is a bigger operation than Israel has engaged in in generations. And there's there's no upside to committing to this offensive prematurely to satisfy a desire mm-hmm. for retribution among mm-hmm. the pop- populace Are better off being fully prepared. But that day never comes. There's no day when you are fully prepared, as Don Rumsfeld said very uh, memorably. You go to war with the army you got.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's. Um, I don't think that that particular quote uh, held up held up very very well. <laughs> well, they,
0: well they, we, the, the, it wasn't the army that was a problem; It was the strategy.
1: Well, the, the, one of the problems they didn't have the kit. I mean, they had these uh, uh, unarmored Humvees that were sending our guys. You know hurtling down the streets of Baghdad to get blown up and, was, and Rumsfeld was kind of trying to justify how we didn't have better kit when we just needed it. And they finally moved out the ball and, and got it. But anyway, Phil.
3: Yeah, so a few things. I think um, it's important when talking about the whole war crime issue to add the broader context, which is that it's not Israel's responsibility to Figure out a way to supply electricity and water in perpetuity for free to Gaza. Hamas has been the governing body in Gaza uh, since 2006. So, for 17 years, they could have been working on ways to increase their water supply and increase their electricity, electrical grid, and supply so that they'd be less vulnerable in the event of a war that they decided to launch against Israel. Um, but what have they done instead of that? They've spent all of the international aid money um, to on weaponry and on building up their, um, their war capability against Israel. They've literally released propaganda videos of digging up water pipes yeah. that were supplied by the international community to help the water crisis in Gaza and convert them to missiles. One of the areas that they fire on repeatedly is the southern Israeli town of Ashkelon. I visited Ashkelon, and I have visited the power plant in Ashkelon, and that power plant supplies electricity to Gaza to make up the gap that's created by Hamas diverting resources to terrorism and they mm-hmm. fire rockets at this town that supplies them with free electricity. Um, the electrical problem is made a lot worse by the fact that Hamas diverts all of the electricity to to light up its tunnels and its terror network. It hoards fuel so that in an emergency, it's going to be able to keep its tunnels lit up. Fuel that could be used To power the electrical grid which could also be used to to um um filter the water and help the water supply so everything is on hamas
0: so and just stole some from the united nations so it's
3: not as if israel is bombing the water supply and the electrical supply of gaza as a war tactic they're simply saying we're not going to give free electricity to make up for the gap that was created by Hamas mm-hmm. not supplying electricity and not actually going about its governing, um,
1: yeah. And- so it's like the the uh, the Gaza sanitation department. The supervisor every day is all right, guys. Go out there and rip up as much ki- stuff as you can and see if you can make it into weapons.
3: Yeah, and and the other factor in this, in terms of the the dynamics with the delay of the. The um, invasion is there are multiple ways that you could look at it. the The sort of optimistic case is that like Israel is basically preparing for a month long operation in Gaza. This isn't the typical thing where they just go in um, until the international community um, has a, enough of an outcry that they have to have some sort of ceasefire from, their perspective, this is a months-long operation. So if, you, if you're if you looking at it in that timeline, then um, a week delay um, uh, isn't going to matter in the broader timeline just to, so you don't go in half-cocked so you get it right. Um, you know, the skeptical case is, well, you lose the strategic initiative, the sort of Napoleonic... Military momentum that you just want to jump on it and and really when you know have them um, at the back of their heels give the the enemy less time to prepare and so forth. Um, in terms of the Biden factor, again, there's the the cynical view that you know Biden and Blinken are working behind the scenes with Qatar, with Iran with other um, uh, operators to try to get. Um, ultimately negotiate some sort of ceasefire and to hold Israel back. Publicly, what Biden and the Biden administration has been saying is that they support Israel in an effort to um, literally decapitate and destroy Hamas, that they know it's going to be a very long effort. But they're arguing that if there is not some sort of way to be able to get humanitarian assistance to people and at least to some extent mitigate the disruption uh to civilians then it's going to be harder for the u.s to convince international partners to give israel the space that it needs that essentially if they could figure out a solution to mitigate the humanitarian crisis, that Israel will actually have more time and space to carry out its military objective. Mm -hmm. And because we're living in it right now, um, it's hard to really say, um, uh, you know, whether these delays that were happening are going to turn out to be a disaster or if it actually is sort of... Sober-minded and 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 good, you know, leadership and good strategic planning. I I, but from the Israeli perspective, the whole point of Israel was never again. We could not have this happen again, and it just happened again. And on on, on their soil, yeah. And if they let it happen again, and there's not an adequate response, that is just a huge blow to the, the psyche of israel that has not existed frankly before in its 75 year history
1: yeah so jim let's do a little domestic politics you know biden has said the right thing take take phil's point we we don't know how their uh, approach uh maybe pl- playing playing out we're, we're seeing it in in real time here but he said, said the right thing you've had the members of the squad say the the wrong thing, <laughs> but you, you've also had a rebuke. We didn't mention this last week, Corinne Jean Pierre. To her credit, uh, strongly rebuked some of the things we've heard from other Democrats. And this is, you know, does does seem to be a fairly small faction. Then you have the debate on the right, where it's also almost universally been very strongly pro-Israel, with some defense uh, dissenting voices. We we hit on Tucker and Vivek. Uh, in the second episode last week, we've had a, a, some some weird things. You know, Charlie Kirk, although he's made. Pro-Israel sounds on Twitter was also speculating in a in an interview or on his podcast, I don't know which, that maybe what happened here that the you know it took eight hours for the Israeli military to respond to the horrific terror attack because that the government had told the military to stand down. The Israeli government had told the military to stand down in order to make the the whole controversy over the judicial reforms go away. And if that's the case, it succeeded brilliantly and this is not a conspiratorial question to ask which is usually a sign that it is a conspiratorial when it when everyone says that it's usually a sign it is a conspiratorial question and sure enough this was a conspiratorial question
2: rich i don't spend any brain cells thinking about what charlie kirk says you just did i, I no and i don't hurt it's my my fault do. i apologize the dog's bark the caravan moves on <laughs> who the hell cares what charlie kirk thinks about the inner state of Israeli politics and the secret plots behind Netanyahu. Um, now, I, I, there there is one curious dynamic, and I'm curious about whether it's my perception of what I see out there on social media, or, or whether um, this is actually whether it's actually the case. Since the Hamas massacre, we saw all kinds of really horrific statements from. Uh, uh, you could call it the fringe left, although I think in the last two weeks we kind of wondered how much of a fringe it was. Um, Because it's university professors, it's heads of organizations, it's a lot of student groups, you know, on all these Ivy League campuses. Uh, Folks with a considerable amount of of social stature in our society who are coming out and saying, ah, let's adopt the paraglider as a symbol. Uh, Oh, they killed a bunch of hipsters in the desert. Um, You know, all this kind of stuff that was, you know, either effectively or directly pro-Hamas. Apparently, some professor at Cornell said something really atrocious the other day. I feel like we haven't seen as much from the anti-Semites on the right, and I'm not saying that there isn't anti-Semitism on the right. I'm just going to—I kind of wonder if the anti-Semites on the right hate Arabs, Muslims, and Hamas as much, that they can't root for this, that this is them is just, you know, one group they hate committing a massacre against another group that they hate, and they don't really see anybody to root for. Whereas in the eyes of the left, the Palestinians are the good guys, and Hamas— because they fight in the name of the, of the Palestinians. I think the Palestinians could justifiably say, what have you really done for us? Mostly you use us as pawns in your uh, war against Israel. Um, but, you know, that that basically the left looks at Hamas at, at best misguided, or, you know, really misguided. They mean well, they're fighting for a righteous cause, blah, 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 and all that nonsense. Um, so, uh, look, you know, the good news is there will always be people who love the Jewish people. The bad news is there will always be people who hate the Jewish mm-hmm. people, and something like this brings them out of the friggin' woodwork. And it's almost like you know, invasion of the body snatchers. Somebody who seems relatively normal suddenly comes out and starts popping off and explaining that, well, you know, those Israeli babies, those kids, they had the four-year-olds, the six-year-olds, they had it coming because you see, they're colonizers and all stuff. Like like any kid deserves any of that. And on the flip side, like you know, for some reason, I've really been. Haunted by that story of the seventy-one-year-old landlord who stabbed that kid twenty-six times, mm-hmm. a six-year-old mm-hmm. kid, and I horrible. It's not a matter of incendiary rhetoric automatically turns people into uh, homicidal maniacs, but I think countries in a very tense, you know, state right now, and I kind of would like to see everybody, you know, kind of be careful what they say and just, just, you know, don't pour more gasoline on the fire. Don't run around saying we need to kill them all, stuff like that. You know, maybe this guy was always a ticking time bomb, but it just feels like this is a time for everybody to be responsible. And uh, as usual, we're we're not getting that from our leadership.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned the paragliders. It, funny how symbols work. If someone had told you two weeks ago the paraglider is going to be a symbol of evil, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to repulse you to even see it—an outline of that drawn on on a sign or whatever. You'd say you're crazy. You're crazy. But uh, it happened, and that's where, where we are. Noah, what have you made of the domestic debate?
0: So I was reading a piece in the Washington Post yesterday. I wrote about it a little bit for The Corner this morning uh, that was chronicling the pressure on Joe Biden from the cracking among Democrats in their support for Israel. And you'd have to read into the piece to discover that this, is, this describes all of about 13 House Democrats. The usual moral reprobates on the squad who are saying, uh, you know, you, you don't defend Israel's right to self-defense and there should be a ceasefire and de-escalation. But beyond that, you have roughly 55 out of the 212 Democrats, which is about a quarter of the caucus, who have signed on to a statement that say we should take all due measures to limit harm and to civilians in this conflict, not signing on to a ceasefire or a de-escalation comment, which is itself sort of rote uh, and Definitely something that Israel already does and is of just a matter of course, part of this administration's rhetoric and any administration's rhetoric. So to say that this is some sort of uh, pressure campaign, resistible or otherwise, seems to me to be an effort to amenitize that, to try to bring that dynamic about, which, by the way, we needs no pressure. It will materialize the second this offensive kicks off. But then you have to wonder, and Jim brought this up earlier, um... Is Joe Biden's trip really productive here? We have some Hebrew language uh, officials in the or news report and uh, quoting officials in the IDF who are saying that this is functionally delaying the inevitable and will cost Israeli lives. It is compelling the uh, IDF to stand down and allow Hamas to turn every freestanding structure into a trap, to rig every piece of rubble, to make sure that those tunnels are a death trap, that nobody knows how extensive they are. And every minute that they waste not going in when they need to go in is another Israeli soldier exposed to harm and possibly uh, a casualty or fatality of this conflict. And I understand the administration's concerns. There's a lot of sudden movements and a lot of sub-Rosa indications that Washington is very afraid about what Iran will do and its proxies and Hezbollah. And the effort to deter Iran is as as paramount for American interests as the effort to support Israel. Um, but is he really contributing to the stated purpose of the administration, the stated cause of the administration to allow Israel to exercise its right to self-defense and to avenge this attack on civilization itself? I'm not so sure. So they get kind of a, that's a backdoor way for them to, while being very dismissive of the squad and the more weak-kneed democrats in the caucus to nevertheless advance their desire to see israel stand down the more it stands down the more danger it is exposed to all
1: right phil x a question to you and this is a this is a very difficult one more wiggle room allowed on this one than than most but assuming a successful israeli military operation in in gaza that effectively Eliminates Gaza as a political and military force. Who should govern Gaza? The UN, Israel, the Palestinian Authority, or whoever the people living in Gaza select.
3: I mean, I don't. I I can't answer that question. Um, Certainly not as an exit question, because I think that that is it's as difficult as it is to imagine the sort of house to house. Um, you know, block by block battle that the IDF has coming up and that even as hard as it would be to imagine a campaign that truly destroys Hamas, it's much harder to understand what type of situation um, would be better. Uh, because you get UN in there, terrorists are still going to um, right, you know, come it's, about. it's almost
1: like having Hamas govern it. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and so then, not only does does Hamas have human shields or Islamic Jihad or whoever takes their place, not only do they have human shields of their own citizens, they, there's also UN forces there that right. Israel would be even more handcuffed to engage.
1: And yeah, and the, and the, the UN forces would be kind of aware that they're de facto hostages. Yeah. on an ongoing
3: basis. Israel certainly doesn't want to have the responsibility of a long-term military occupation of Gaza where it's putting its troops in harm's way for a long time. Um, You don't know who really comes after Hamas. You have half the population is under 18, and they've been living under Hamas and being educated in Hamas schools their entire life so they're all completely radicalized and so i don't really it's hard for me to really know obviously you have to go in there you have to completely eliminate hamas but it's not completely easy to 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 really detect this but i i think that the bigger thing you know the additional thing that worries me is that whatever happens to this it's not going to change the situation in the United States. It's not going to change the situation with um, on college campuses. It's not going to change the threats against, I mean, Jewish schools have been forced to close. In New York, um, Jews have been told not to go to um, Shabbat services because they can't, you know, because their safety essentially cannot be guaranteed. And to me that that is, as an American Jew, the most horrifying thing, because essentially to an extent that I I never had to before, I actually have to think about the the difficulty of like, do I live a Jewish life? Does my family live a Jewish life? Or do we try to disguise mm-hmm. our Judaism and not practice Judaism? Because... Participating in Jewish institutions raises the risk that we'll be put in harm's way, and yeah. a- in the United States of
1: America, yeah. <laughs> 21st century. And I, I, um, I had a friend move down to Florida a couple of years ago, and I was just chit-chatting with him, and he's like, "You know, I, I got it. I got a gun, and uh, I take it to the the synagogue every Saturday." I said, like, "What? Why do you do that?" It's like the rabbi asked me to. You know, and and that's that's prior even to this the, the heightened I mean, in our, in tensions here.
3: We have you know police officers there all the time in it. You know, in addition to security, and that's yeah.
1: so. So Noah, your, your take on the unanswerable question: Who, who should govern Gaza, assuming a, an effective military uh, operation by Israel?
0: So, this it's, it, it feels right. It's an impossible to answer question. So, but I, I will say, however, that sort of a digression. There's the misconception about neoconservatives. There's a lot of people who call people neoconservatives, including as I was reading Jared Kushner's book the other day, he called John Bolton a neoconservative in his book. John Bolton does not identify as a neoconservative. You know why? Because a lot of that foreign policy prescription that was applied to the neoconservatives had to do with democracy promotion, had to do with state building, not an extroverted presence on the world stage, not the application of force. So As much as this question is impossible to answer, it's also not necessarily an answer that Israel needs to give right now. I also saw David Petraeus saying, you know, Israel needs to think about the day after, what comes after regime change in Gaza. And maybe the answer is nothing. Israel's job right now is to smash this regime, to break things, to dissolve the regime by force. What follows that is a question both for Israel and the international community. But it can put in some sort of a uh, a provisional government, for example, composed of Arabs that it regards as more deal-withable, perhaps, than Hamas. But the problem is the people. The people elected Hamas in 2006. Mm -hmm. If there was an election today, they would win in Gaza. If there was an election today, they would win in the West Bank. Hamas is extremely popular. Mm -hmm. The public there supports the mission, the enterprise, the murder of Jews where they can be found. Yeah, and that, that it's was. Not a, it's not something that can be dealt with by some sort of a, a provisional government or a coalition of the willing that just you know goes in there and tries to stabilize the place tomorrow.
1: Yeah, this is one of the uh, rationales, right? Um, maybe not the, the, the first one for the attack, but to establish uh, uh, primacy over the Palestinian Authority and be the, the main event and become even more popular. Jim Garrity, your, your quick take on the impossible-to-answer exit question.
2: Uh, kind of pulling for the Ottoman Empire here. Um, <laughs> I mean, Rich, as to your suggestion about having- I should have I should have included that in the options. I, uh, <laughs> the idea of having the United Nations run the Gaza Strip. Look, I think even if you're the hardest heart, you have to say the Palestinians have suffered enough. Uh, <laughs> you don't, don't deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, semi-seriously, out of the options you listed, I mean, if you if you gave them the democratic option, last the one time they had a free and fair election, Hamas won. I don't think there's much reason to think that Hamas wouldn't win another one. We see the you know the mess that comes out of that. Um, so I guess the best of these limited options would be the Palestinian Authority, but that's an extremely low bar to clear.
1: Yeah, I just think this is. I do think you have to think about this because it it determines what what the ultimate outcome really of your military operation is, because there's always the next day after you break stuff. And I just I don't know. I don't know. You know, we've talked about the problems of the UN. Obviously Israel doesn't want to govern it. The Palestinian Authority, I mean, yeah, ideally on paper you'd hand it over to the Palestinian Authority, but is that really going to work if it's getting <laughs> it's getting control of Gaza directly from the Israeli government after this punishing military campaign. And and we just talked about the problem with you know having a new election. You know, uh, Hamas or something like Hamas, maybe under a new name, would would win a sweeping victory. So this is um, it's 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 a, just a, a hellish problem, and there's no good answer to it. With that, let's uh, consider a sunnier topic our friends at moink from small family farms to your dining table moink gives you access to the freshest sustainably sourced meat and fish all while supporting american family farms you can help save the family farm and get access to the highest quality meat on earth when you join the moink movement today moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb pastured pork and chicken and sustainable wild-caught alaskan salmon straight to your door moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, moink meat tastes like it should. Because the family farm does it better. The Moik difference is a difference you can taste and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent, Two, You choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes to chicken breast to pork chops to salmon fillets and much, much more. Plus, you can cancel at any time. Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moik's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted and Ring Doorbell founder Jamie Simimoff jumped at the chance to invest in moink plus they guarantee you'll say oink oink i'm so happy i got moinked we got moinked just a couple weeks ago here at the lowry household and it is kind of an event getting this box it's a very impressive box with this very cool magazine in it about how to cook and enjoy meat there's all this dry ice packed in there. So it's, it's kind of cool. And the the meat is just fantastic. It is just fantastic. And it's why we're, we're not really joking when we're uh, having a competition on air, who's going to do the Moink read because everyone on this podcast pretty much is a huge fan of Moink and you will be too if you give it a try. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com Slash editors right now and listeners of this show get free ground beef for a year. Yes, that you just heard me correctly. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste. But for a limited time, it's spelled M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash editors. That's moinkbox.com slash editors. Please check it Out, So, Phil Klein, we are recording on late Tuesday morning, as is our want for the first ep of this pod. Every week, I'm looking at my clock right now. It says 10.58 a.m. There is a a vote scheduled beginning at noon in the House on who will be the next speaker. Jim Jordan won the latest vote of the conference. I think the last time we talked about this... Last week, Scalise had just stepped down, wasn't clear exactly what was going to happen. There was another vote in the House. Jordan won, not smashingly, given that he just had token opposition, but the token opponent, whose name now escapes me, got a lot of votes. And then I I believe they had a vote, will you support Jim Jordan on the floor? And 55 people said no. (laughs) You, You can't lose that many. You can't lose nearly that many. You can lose four or five or whatever it is now. Give or take. But yesterday and over the weekend, Jordan made some progress. Some high profile opponents of his within the conference said, you know what, we're coming along. There's a rumor that Jordan uh, guaranteed to have a a vote on Ukraine and Israel funding. I think maybe together in one measure, I'm not sure. The Jordan people are a little cagey about that, but certainly seems as though some sort of assurances were made to get these people along. But the conventional wisdom, which is often wrong, well, you'll know more when you're probably probably actually listening to this podcast, because the vote will have happened before most people get to it, that Jordan will get close, but still be short. Let's put aside what the ultimate result here is going to be, because it's unknowable for us here at now 11 a.m. What have you made of the dynamics?
3: I mean, it, it's completely ridiculous that we're in this situation to begin with. Um, uh, I think that... You know, it started when uh, Republicans underperformed dramatically because they, uh, the GOP was taken over by a lot of people who refused to accept that Joe Biden won the election, people who were endorsed and pushed by Trump and who won primaries. So they come in with this very narrow majority. And it takes fifteen ballots for McCarthy to get on and to become speaker, um, and basically he's threading the needle as best as it you know it could be threaded in terms of trying to give um, you know conservatives as much as what they want. With the fact that you had a Democratic Senate and Biden is president, you're not going to get everything that you want. Um, and then you have a brigade of um, people who just want to see stuff burn, um, that we're happy to work with Democrats to get rid of McCarthy. Um, and so the big question for me right now, and this will, again, know a bit more in the next few hours, is whether or not the sort of more moderate Republicans are just will tank Jordan because they don't think that the people who wanted to blow things up should get rewarded by getting the guy that they wanted and preferred. They don't want these sort of tactics to succeed. But the, the difficulty they face is um, Jordan may be at this point the only person who could get 217 votes. And so if you if you just want this to be over with and just want to be able to have the house open again— then Jim Jordan is the most immediate vehicle to do that. Um, it's unclear if, you know, if, if people listening to this um, on Tuesday night are looking at Jim Jordan having gone down, what, you know, what comes next. My half-joking, half-serious argument is that they should just start going through uh, the 222 Republican members one by one, A to Z, hold rapid fire votes on each of them. And then, at the end, we'll at least know if there's literally any member of Congress who could get to 217. And then maybe, yeah, it,
1: and the answer would probably be
3: no, and right? That, and at that point, maybe you start to look outside of Congress.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Jim, I, I, I understand the irritation that Phil was describing. Um, of, more moderate members that this this all this was blown up and created for no good reason and just just to get Kevin McCarthy's scalp for the sake of getting Kevin McCarthy's scalp on the other hand my my view has been just whoever gets a majority vote in the conference everyone should just swing around and make that person speaker and the bouncing ball you know fairly or not is is landed on Jim Jordan here. It's uh, an an irony of politics and just goes to how funny politics can work. Phil and I were discussing this yesterday. If Jim Jordan had won the initial vote, he ran against Scalise in the conference and and lost fairly narrowly. If he'd won that initial vote, he would not be speaker. He would have zero chance of being speaker. He wouldn't have the votes to get on the floor. He would have had to drop out the way Scalise had dropped out, and then Scalise, having lost that vote, would probably be in the position Jordan is now. Look, guys, here we go. We can't do this again. You know, you just got to come around, and there would have been some chance that that he would have gotten there. No guarantee because we we don't even know uh, that uh, Jordan will will get there. But what do you make of it?
2: Well, first of all, before I jump into that, Rich, I just want to note Phil Klein thinks he's very clever, but I know he's always had. A strong bias against Montana Representative Ryan Zinke, which is why he wants to go alphabetically from A to Z. He wants to make sure Zinke is the last option for Republicans for Speaker. To be to be fair, you'd have
1: to have two rounds: one starting with A and then going backwards from Z, just just in case there's a bias
2: of uh, I would based say on position. They should order the vote. By height, so the new speaker <laughs> could be said to be standing tall. Um, uh. Look, my, the first thing I keep coming back to—I don't want to, you know, repeat what Phil said too much—but like there, there were, the House goes out of session for like two weeks at a time, several times during a the year. There, there are patches of time where the House could have this kind of internal Republican drama. You could, you know, knife the Speaker McCarthy in the back, and you could sort it out. And have 10 days, 11 days, however many days we're up to without a speaker. This is not that stretch, right? The moment there was that Hamas attack on Israel, the House had work to do. It was time for the grown-ups to speak. It was time for Republicans to get their act together. And the entire time, I I don't have really much of a dog in this fight. I I don't really think that Jim Jordan is the right mentality persona to be Speaker of the House. I, I think Scalise... The health concerns were a legitimate reason to, to wonder if he was going to be able to handle the duties for the long run. Um, everybody else there. But mostly, I just want to see Republicans get their act together, unite behind somebody, and get it done. And so if by tonight or in the not-too-distant future, uh, we're talking about Speaker of the House Jim Jordan, okay, there's there's three upsides to that as I see it. The first one is we have a speaker, and having a speaker is better than not having a speaker. Uh, the second one is that if Scalise, uh, if uh, if Jordan does manage to pull this off, well, it would indicate that maybe he's a little bit of a better deal maker than we thought. Uh, it certainly seems like the House Republican Ukraine hawks have been jumping on board in the last day or two. So maybe he is a little bit better at building a consensus than we think. Uh, but then the third one is, let's say we have House Speaker Jim Jordan, and three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, the Matt Gaetzes of the world have the same old complaints. Well, if that, do, that did, if that does come to pass, then it will demonstrate to everybody, including the most pro-Matt Gates Republican voter down in Florida, that this was not really a problem with Kevin McCarthy. The problem was having a very narrow House majority, and McCarthy just didn't have that much leverage. And you're angry at him over stuff he can't really control? Because the idea that Jim Jordan, sometime in the next, you know, months or year, is going to turn into a rhino, squish, sellout, compromising, moderate, established, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's not who a Jim Jordan is. And so if the, if, if a, down the road these guys have the same complaints about Jim Jordan, it means it was never about McCarthy. And what these guys' problem is is the this state of the government, that you don't have a big majority mm-hmm. in the House, you don't have much leverage, you can't get what you want. You have to settle for half a loaf when you only control the House narrowly. Welcome to reality. But, you know, reality's never gotten these guys' ways before, so maybe I shouldn't expect to start now.
1: Yeah, well, Jordan's first act in 30 days now or whatever it is, is either going to be having to cut the same sort of spending deal that Kevin McCarthy did broadly, maybe be a, a, you know, a few little differences here or there, or go into a shutdown and then after a shutdown cut the same kind of deal that Kevin McCarthy did on spending. But
0: Noah. I just I, I find myself repulsed by the tactics that have been employed by the nihilistic wing of the Republican Party. All the nonsense that they've been retailing for the last month went out the window. Oh, we can't go to a floor vote with Steve Scalise, even though he won by something like 30 votes in the conference because he doesn't have the 217 needed to be speaker. Now we got to go to the floor no matter what, just to put the pressure on these holdout Republicans. Oh, we got to do this internally. You know, we can't necessarily just, you know, throw this out to the public. This is a job for the conference alone. Oh, now, no, we got to enlist the entire conservative media apparatus, the Fox News primetime lineup to put pressure on our representatives in order to uh, just acquiesce to our demands. This was said by um, Representative Kelly Armstrong, who is a Jordan holdout, who has said, quote, the best person to keep conservative media off our backs as we face a shutdown is now Jim Jordan, meaning this pressure campaign is working. They're leveraging the world that is on fire and the impending shutdown fight to impose moral blackmail on the members of their conference who who really do want to meet the measure of this moment. They're imposing on them the kind of demands that they don't face because they do not feel any similar compunction. The notion here that Ukraine funding was some sort of a roadblock um, to the to leadership was exposed as a red herring when they ousted McCarthy after he got rid of Ukraine funding. By the way, we haven't talked about Ukraine funding very much, but this morning, the first battlefield use of Atacoms, or Attackums. The best acronym in the the history of military, yeah, these long-range missiles was used in the battlefield context, and it took out nine Russian helicopters, a radar installation, and an ammunition depot. That's great ROI. We should keep doing that. But it was never about that. It was always about power. And I take a little bit of issue with something that, that Jim said earlier, which is defensible in the context of this fight, that it's about the smallness of the conference. But it's the same fight we've been having for a decade. Regardless of the size of the conference, sometimes the conference is really large and the House Freedom Caucus doesn't get its way because it is so large. That's what's different here. Their problem, however, persists not because it has anything to do with the demands of the politics of the moment. It's about power and leadership. They don't like leadership because leadership has to compromise and they want more power. So they will use all their power, that all the leverage that they can to anathematize and stigmatize whoever occupies a position of leadership because of the demands of leadership. It is not a conference that can be negotiated with. It wants to be ungovernable. If it wants to be ungovernable, it will not be governable. It doesn't matter who occupies the speakership or the majority leader role. This is what we're going to face consistently. I don't know how to get around that. They seem perfect. The members of this conference who do want to adopt that position seem perfectly happy to paralyze the government whenever they don't get their way and will do so in perpetuity, whoever occupies that role. I don't know how to end that dynamic. But the way in which this... This particular fight over Jordan speakership in particular has played out, has demonstrated that they will be giving in to um, blackmail, which will be get more blackmail.
1: Phil Klein, next question to you. We'll see how this uh, plays out here soon enough. But do you think the chaos to this point has materially affected the Republicans, House Republicans' ability to hold on to the House majority in 2024, yes or no?
3: Yes. I think that it makes the argument a lot stronger that Republicans cannot be trusted with power because they're incapable of governing.
2: Jim Garrity. The only thing that could salvage this for Republicans is that there's a lot of time between now and when Republicans or when voters go to the polls in November 2024, and we'll probably have other things on our mind between now and then. But uh, this was this was a self inflicted wound. No.
0: Yep. Uh, if Democrats get Donald Trump as the nominee, they will run on January 6th. And if the House Speaker is a material participant in the effort to overturn the election results in 2020, it will only advance that argument.
1: I'm going to say yes, but but only at the the margins. There'll be much big much bigger factors at play. But they they shot in the back of the head. Their their biggest fundraiser and they're gonna elevate Jordan who has these vulnerabilities. I don't it takes a lot though for for a house speaker to become famous and radioactive enough to really hurt individual members in their district you know it happened with newt who was like an enormous figure after 1994 it happened with nancy pelosi but you know years it took years and years of 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 effort you know to to elevate her and then and then make her the the symbol of all all that was wrong with house democrats so i'm going to say yes but only A little bit. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Bambi. When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting, shall we say, situations. For example, somebody isn't showing up when they're supposed to. Well, You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members can reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant. With changing HR regulations. With Bambi's HR autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers can easily cost 80 grand a year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in editors under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help this show on top of everything else. It's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. That's B-E-E at the end. .com. Bambi.com. Type in editors under podcast. Please check it out. So, Jim Garrity. We have the ongoing legal drama with Donald Trump, there's really there's almost not a Republican primary campaign going on. You know, there's sort of big events, and the primary campaign always kind of plays under it. You know, what do the other candidates think of Trump's mugshot? What do they think of his legal troubles? What do they think of the the war in Gaza? And and so, some ways, the, these these legal um, cases and maneuverings are, are almost kind of constitute, or at least a big part of the campaign if they don't constitute the campaign itself. But we have a gag order imposed against Trump in the January 6th case. And this is just a a heck of a problem because, yes, is he saying things that no other defendant could possibly get away with saying? Yes, that's true. But is he also a presidential candidate in a way that no other defendant has been? And does that create major free speech Issues trying to, to silence him and an extremely politically uh, sensitive and, and fraught case, yes as well.
2: Rich, I might dispute the idea that the court, you know, legal filings and drama and all that stuff is part of the primary campaign because as far as we can tell, or you like you say, the, the court dynamics aren't changing and neither are the primary dynamics. There is no up and down. There is no change to this. Um, they're running on parallel tracks towards their destinations. I'm not 100% sure that, um, I, you know, we, we definitely saw that little bit of a surge on the first indictment by Alvin Bragg, but I, you know, there's been no drama since then. I don't know if there's necessarily been any change in, significant change in Trump's numbers. Um, as for the the gag order itself, um, my, again, if, if any McCarthy comes out and says, this is uh, an outrageous infringement of First Amendment, uh, Trump's First Amendment rights. I'll I'll concur. But my my initial reading or my initial look sounded like the judge wasn't saying you're not allowed to say anything about this case at all. You're you're just stop attacking court officials, uh, stop you know demonizing everyone who's working on this case, uh, and saying you know and that that seems relatively reasonable. If you know the fear that this is going to incite some. Caesar Sayak nut job to try to, you know, mail a pipe bomb to somebody doesn't seem like an unreasonable concern on the part of the judge or the court. Um, so, but the other thing, like as soon as I saw the headline, you know, judge, you know, puts a gag order on Trump. Uh, does it involve um, duct tape? Does it involve, you know, literally gagging him? Because like, that's the only way it's going to work. Uh, Trump is always going to, you know, uh, rant in front of the cameras. He's always going to jump onto truth social and use all caps and Say that everybody's out to get him and this is the deep state, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, it'll be fun to see this judge attempt to enforce it because my guess is that the amount of time that it takes Trump to violate the gag order will be. I'm, I'm surprised maybe by the time people listen to this, he will have already violated the gag order. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, that's this is who Trump is. You know, you tell him not to, you know, you do, look, the entire history of Donald Trump since coming down on that escalator has been in, in Republican politics has been people saying, Mr. Trump, if you put that fork into the electrical socket, you're going to get – <laughs> oh, I'm going to show you. You don't tell me what I can't do. Look at that. Bzz, ah! you know. And he does it over and over again. So telling him he can't do something just makes him want to do it more. Uh, I have no reason to think that this judge's gag order will have any different effect. Phil? Yeah, I mean
3: I think that <clears throat> what we have is just another example of how Trump and his behavior and everything about Trump and the way people react to Trump – um, is sort of so unprecedented that we end up with paradoxes and, and dilemmas within the system that we've never really faced before. Now normally in this ca- in a, a typical case, if you had a defendant publicly trashing uh, court officials, um, there would be no question that there would be a gag order and there would be repercussions for that. But typically, you don't have the defendant being a leading candidate for the president of the United States, and when somebody's a leading candidate for the president of the United States, they have to have very wide latitude to say whatever they you know want to say while they're running for president, and the um you know particularly the fact that a big part of the campaign is the fact that he's under facing these multiple indictments. And so he has to defend himself in the court of public opinion against these efforts. Um, I mean, it does prevent a difficult tension. Um And uh, again, as Jim said, he's going to violate this gag order. And then what? Is he going to be held in contempt? Are you going to you know, send him to jail because he violated the gag order? Um, I mean, what, what what operatively is the judge going to do?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, my take on this is that this, this kind of tension was inevitable. This is why in any case that was least bit ambiguous, it never should have been brought. And I think that's every case except for obstruction on the classified documents, which I, I think they have them nailed on and anyone else would be Prosecuted for, and maybe you know all, all these attentions, All these tensions rise in that context anyway. So there's no avoiding them. But it, it just, to me, speaks to the uh, la- lack of wisdom and, and prudence in going after him, hammer and tongs, which I, I read as as being in large part when it's not. Ah, uh, completely politically motivated. Like the the Bragg prosecution is is motivated by an excess of zeal that you don't want to see on the part of law enforcement <laughs> officials uh, on in a politically uh, fraught case. And then he should be able to call Jack Smith a, a thug. No one else talks that way. Um, it's 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 crude, it's inflammatory. But that that's his way of of uh, discussing people he opposes and he, the, there is a good case that this is a politicized prosecution and that the defendant who's who's a leading candidate for president of the United States can't say that in his own terms strikes me as crazy and then the judge you know I understand the the impulse she doesn't want her clerk clerk attacked etc but as both Jim and and Phil have pointed out it she's she's gonna end up playing on Trump's turf entirely finds him good for for Trump, you know, goes to, it's hard to imagine we'd go there, but, you know, uh, wants to detain him pre-trial, playing on Trump's turf totally. And then if she does nothing, she's also played totally into Trump's hands because Trump's great virtue for his voters is the image of strength, and this is not... This is not a worthy way to to think about it. It's not the way I would think about it. But defying a judge's order (laughs) is going to play for a lot of people as strength. So just nothing good is going to come from this. But Noah, your take?
0: Yeah, I I just just don't quite understand the argument. Judge Chutkin, if we were to to assume that she's a political operative here at a row, but she's just a Democrat, and she's just doing anything to advance a Democrats' Democrats' position, then of course it plays into Joe Biden's strengths in order to compel him or to, uh, to one of two things, or Donald Trump's things, or no, Joe Biden's strengths to do one of two things. Either to say that we have to treat him differently, as some Republicans are, that he needs to enjoy a double standard that no one else would enjoy, only to preserve the rule of law. That is a perverse argument. It's a nonsensical argument and if he were to buy if he were to violate this this gag order which by the way is tailored Yes, it said, don't provoke violence against court officials. As remarkable as that is, but it also explicitly says that he can attack the Justice Department for prosecuting him unfairly. He can attack Joe Biden. The prosecutors say because Joe Biden has nothing to do with this. I know, but, it but it I mean, we
1: have we have a judge decide. Is she's deciding whether he can attack Joe so Biden or not, it? and then saying it's supposed we're supposed to think she's showing great she's prudence and wisdom that, that she says her. it's it's okay to attack Joe Biden. That yeah, that's that's the position that I think we should have avoided putting any uh judicial uh, you know any judge in who, who who's she to decide it's it's She's the totally judge inappropriate presiding
0: over his criminal case i know
1: that's why you should have avoided ambiguous criminal this is cases the most important
0: part about this is that the trial date is not moving it will be march 4th donald trump will be on trial for this and yes if he were to violate this this gag order to the to the effect that it compels Judge Shuckin to go further than a fine, to go further than a court, uh, than a censure in court and actually revoke pretrial release or go to home detention? Sure, that would absolutely animate Republicans to rally behind him, but it would cost Donald Trump profoundly. Every poll we've seen suggests it would, that jailing Donald Trump would cost profoundly among Republicans to say nothing of independents and Democrats. So if Judge Shuckin is just a Democratic operative in a robe, why wouldn't she want to pursue that? Why wouldn't she want to bait Republicans into cutting off their own nose?
1: So... So, so what so, so, what's your bottom line? then that
0: my bottom line is that Donald Trump is a citizen of the United States, has been accused of a crime and will have his day in court. And if he thinks that he needs to benefit from some sort of a special situation here because he's Donald Trump, he's a presidential candidate, well, then gosh, yeah, everybody should run for president then., but everyone's
1: problem. not not running for president. And everyone knew he was running for president. And this is an ambiguous case that it it didn't have to be. And if
0: it's so ambiguous, I, think the, I have a lot of faith in the jury system that it will find that the evidence does not substantiate the charge. If we have any faith at all in the fundamentals of English common law that buttress our legal system, we should allow the jury to do its job.
1: Yeah, but the, the, the thing is you, your your case is totally abstracted from reality and how people are going to react to it and that this is terrible for the, this is not, none of this is good for the country and was avoidable. My My case would be where there would have been a double standard looking past it is the obstruction on the classified documents. Prosecute him on that. On all the stuff that's a reach or is ambiguous, don't prosecute him on that because he is – the reality is he's a presidential candidate and it's going to present all these terrible dilemmas where you have a judge deciding what a presidential candidate is going to no s- – can one put say. No in this
0: position but Donald well, Trump. That's not I true. Completely that's completely not completely true. It's, it's,
1: it's uh, he, Jack, Jack true. Smith had no no agency.
3: And keep in mind, I mean, we keep saying he's a presidential candidate. There's a distinction between, you know, somebody is accused of a crime, so they just file papers in New Hampshire, and being a former president who is the leading presidential candidate and who in a number of polls would beat the sitting president. Again, I'm not even disputing a lot of much of what you're saying, Noah. I'm just saying, you know... It does pose a difficult situation that we've not really had to confront before.
1: Exit question to you, Jim Garrity. On let's let's go straight politics. Let, let's not. Uh, this this race for non-Trump people has uh, <laughs> has developed so badly. I'm going to go very minimal. There will be something like a competitive race in an early state. As things get later here and voters begin to focus, yes or no? Just competitive, yes Um, or no?
2: Yeah, because I think the economies of Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina kind of depend on the presidential primaries being important. And if uh, we're going to move on to a system of de facto coronations of royalty – Then, then why would people spend all that money in those early states? So I I think that, and my my guess would be New Hampshire would be the one that'll be most likely to go this way, Um, but maybe Iowa. You know, but but some point, like the incentive to that that, you know there'll be a consolidation amongst whoever's running second to Trump right now. Still looks like DeSantis, but maybe you know Haley's gaining ground. And uh, my guess is it'll be. you know that, that one of them will be reasonably competitive but i at this point it certainly looks like trump's going to cruise all right
1: Re- reasonably J- jim's putting a chit down on reasonably competitive phil
3: i i don't necessarily i i think there will be one moment in the race where things will shake out that the conventional wisdom which is now nobody has a shot trump you know is going to win wire to wire um, I think that will change, and there will be a moment um, of a few weeks where we'll think, oh, maybe actually Trump can be beaten. Um, I don't think he'll ultimately be beaten, but I, I whether that comes with an upset victory or or something coming really close, somebody coming really close in Iowa, I think it will be harder in New Hampshire because... Chris Christie um, has enough cash on hand to go through New Hampshire. He'll probably take about, you know, 10% of the hard anti-Trump vote. And then there's not, there's just sort of scraps left over for everyone else. But I, I do think that there will be some moment in which we'll start to doubt, you know, maybe he's, he's not going to win.
1: All right. So no, we got Jim saying reasonably competitive, and Phil saying at least for for a couple weeks in there somewhere, we'll 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 think it's a race. Where are you?
0: I mean, there right now for the Miami debate in November, only four candidates, including Donald Trump, is qualified: Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek. And Tim Scott's campaign shows signs that it's folding shop, and Mike Pence looks like he's closing up. And you know, as as Phil said. Chris Christie has a one-state strategy, and he could go to New Hampshire, which looks like Trump's weakest state, and just keep, you know get the multi-car pileup dynamic going. But if the winnowing happens by November, by December, by January, then yeah, if it's a two-person race, it could absolutely be very, very close, at which point Donald Trump probably wins. But it's still very competitive, so I'm going to say competitive.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say yes as well. Not a lot, not with a lot of confidence, but uh, uh, almost every race gets at least briefly, seemingly competitive. So I'm still going to bet on that uh, history, but it it hasn't it hasn't looked great so far. With that, let me pause. Plug uh, the monthly print edition. It is out. It's available digitally. It might even, if you're located in just the right spot where the postal service gets to you quickly, you, you might uh, e- even have had a, a this uh, print edition show up in your mailbox. But the early reviews from folks are very gratified is that it's fantastic and they really love it. We hope that'll be your reaction as well. Also, f- this Friday morning at around 8 a.m., we'll have the first digital Weekly edition of the week, the front section of the magazine is very popular with these incisive, witty, quick takes on uh, recent news events that will be available to you for free in your inbox if you are so inclined. And want it. And also, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus, our digital subscription service at nationalreview.com, your way around a meter paywall, your way to dig deeper into our community. If that floats your boat, your way. If you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads, and it won't cost you an arm or a leg. So if you haven't signed up already, please consider at least joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member. Of N R Plus. So, Jim, let's hit a few other things before we go. You took a major risk and went out and got a COVID shot.
2: Yeah, in certain circles, this is extraordinarily controversial. Uh, wife was out of town like two weeks ago and said, you know, you should get a flu shot, you should get your COVID shot. Um, And I was like, you know what, because every once in a while I've had a bad reaction, like I just, I don't have a day where I can just be, you know, out of commission uh, with her away. So this weekend, getting ready for a big trip. She's like, you really should take care of that before you go. All right. Go to one place, get the flu shot. That's pretty easy. They don't have, Yeah, they need an appointment for the COVID shot. Go to another supermarket. They've got it there. Um, I have two reasons to, I I am a born again anti-vaxxer. Yes, my tongue is in cheek. But I'm just going to point out, one, my COVID shot's been a pain in the neck or pain in my shoulder for like uh, uh, two days. And it's one of those things like at this point, I was I was asymptomatic last COVID. Give it to me. Let me let me have COVID again. Uh, and then secondly, as many, you know, kind of previewing what I suspect will be Phil's lighter item. Uh, this past weekend, Aaron Rodgers, the notorious anti-vaxxer uh, who tore his Achilles tendon in the beginning of September and looked like he was going to have a long year's worth of rehab before he could be on a football field again. Was walking around with no boot, no crutches, and uh, throwing the football around. Obviously, he's a good ways away from being ready to put on a uniform and play again. But the idea of him playing by the end of the season um, doesn't seem crazy unthinkable based on this pace. And uh, you know, I'm looking at that thinking, you know, I pull muscles while I'm yawning. And yet Rodgers is running around doing like this. Maybe maybe it was the vaccines all along. So, uh, you know, as much as my Irk Fauci, maybe that's, you know, Aaron Rodgers make a compelling argument, right? making fun of Mr. Pfizer a.k.a. Kelsey, and uh, he, of course, working for Mr. Johnson & Johnson. So, Phil, the Jets have been mentioned.
3: Yeah, um, I have to say it was just great watching the Jets beat the Eagles. Um, I grew up in southern New Jersey, the the Eagles part of New Jersey, um, as a kid, and I was— uh, even though I was born in New York, so I brought all my New York team allegiances, and I was just drowned in, in Philadelphia green instead of Jets growing up, and I just to despise the Eagles. So it was especially sweet um, to just beat the, the last um, uh, undefeated team and just with a great defensive effort.
1: Yeah, so I, I've always hated the the Eagles. Not really based on anything rational, but when you're a kid, you kind of you know develop these aversions. I never liked their uniforms. I don't like the new version of of their uniforms, and I hated looking at the artificial turf at the Vet on on TV. Um, so I've just I've, I've never liked the Eagles. For what it's worth, Noah, you had your former commentary colleague Abe Greenwald over for dinner.
0: Yes, we did. I was being a little subversive because I'm trying to lure him out of uh, Manhattan. So I lit the fire and pacified the children with iPads. I <laughs> was really trying to set the stage of this, you know, cozy, cozy co- country life. Um, but it was lovely. Had him and his lovely wife out, and we had a very good time. And it was, you know, politics free and news free, um, which was important given the events, but given recent events, but. Um, my colleagues over at Commentary are doing fantastic work. These are the moments that Commentary exists for. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Um, I think it should direct readers' attention over there if they get the opportunity. Once they're done reading, National Review, of course.
1: Absolutely. So I'm very competitive when it comes to playing the major sports, by which I mean wiffle ball, air hockey, and touch football. So at the the local field over the weekend, I got a touch football game going with these kids and it it, uh, kind of ended on a sour note because one of the kids thought i had pushed them too hard and i will concede that if you're a grown man and a 10 or 12 year old kid (laughs) thinks you've pushed them too hard you probably pushed them too hard so i'm not going to defend my conduct necessarily i'm just going to say it was fourth and goal right at the goal line and this this was a big play. We we're on defense. And all it's trying to do is stop them from getting in. you know, so there was no there was no malice uh, on this this push. And emotions might have been running high because the the other team was beating us forty 42- two to seven and I artificially reset the game just said okay you win that one and we're just going to have one possession each you know and, and whoever comes on top uh, if someone comes out on top they they win so the other team wasn't enamored by this uh uh this this ruling and that that might have played into the the sour feelings uh, at the end, but as I think back on it, you know, I just said, "Okay, you made it in." I'm not sure he made it in. I think I actually might have uh, tagged him before his foot went over the line, but but I decided not not to pursue the matter. And at least at at that respect, in that respect, be the uh, the, the big guy uh, uh, on on the field. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick?
2: Uh, you know, I, I feel like things have been really strong all across the site and the magazine, but I'm going to go with the absent Charlie Cooks. The woke code of morality was all nonsense. Um, where he points out like everything we've heard from the whiners in the campus community about discourse, about what democracy required, about all that stuff. Because like, remember for, you know, decades now, it's been, ah, you know, we need a safe space on campus. Now it's perfectly okay for the pro-Hamas crowd to cheer on terrorist attacks and nobody ah, nobody's worried about a safe space there. And, you know, Charlie just goes down the list. Prohibition on tone policing, gone. The injunction to believe all women evaporated. Silence is violence, not anymore. Neutrality is, all this kind of point. Defunct, obsolete, kaput. Um, Look, Charlie is always a really good writer. And when he's angry, when something sticks in his craw, it brings out his best. And uh, he just rips it to shreds as it absolutely thoroughly deserves. Phil?
3: So I'd like to pick uh, Ari Bluff. Uh, piece. Um, He interviewed a survivor of the, um, one of the survivors against the Hamas, of the Hamas terrorist attacks, and just walked them through what happened um, and his attitude. And it was really well done. It's called, Our Duty as Survivors, Israeli Concert Goer Vows to Go
0: on Living After Howering Escape from Hamas. Noah? Jim's right. It's an embarrassment of riches. Um, I want to put in a quick good word for Zach Kessel, who's been doing amazing work. He did a piece, Turning Point USA's Conspiratorial Turn, and he describes why a commitment, a philosophical commitment to conspiratorial thought just invariably leads you to the world's oldest conspiracy, anti-Semitism. But I have to say that Dan McLaughlin's "Tanahisi nehisi Coates and the Moral Rot of Anti-Zionism is just crystalline moral clarity where he dissects word by word, line by line, this open letter, essentially blaming Israel for the slaughter of its citizens, and saying, writing something that what he says, the reads like Hamas propaganda. But worse, it reads as Hamas propaganda. You should all go check it out.
1: Yeah, I was going to pick that, but I, I was pretty certain someone else would, so I, I skipped it. But no, you're absolutely right about that piece. My. Other pick, which is not in any way to slight it because it's fantastic on its own terms, is a magazine piece by Wilford Riley, Why Thomas Sowell Matters. Uh, Anyone who follows Wilford on Twitter knows he's a huge Thomas Sowell fan. So I've wanted to see him write this piece for a long time, and Ramesh and Mark Wright, our colleagues, Assigned it to them. It's uh, truly excellent, and you know, some of the be- best pieces you're going to get from people are if they're writing about something they truly love, like Wilford on Thomas Sowell, or something they they really hate. And this is an excellent piece uh, in in the print magazine. There are a lot of other excellent pieces because the print magazine is bigger than ever. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast, and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly Prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Phil. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Moink and Bambi, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.